The blog post version of this episode is brought to you by the Book Launch Blueprint, our once-a-year course to help you launch your book with a bang. I'll have more info about the Book Launch Blueprint at the end of the episode. A few years ago, I came across a statistical analysis of best-selling books. This is the kind of nerdy reading I do with my free time. And one of the things that the stats showed was that best-selling books had fewer words per sentence on average than books that sold poorly. In other words, the longer the sentence is, the lower the sales. Now, best-selling authors know that good writing is often more like sculpture, where you remove all of the unneeded marble to reveal the sculpture underneath. Writers call this writing, writing tight, and a lot of work goes in to taking out and identifying those unneeded words. And it often also takes courage because as your writing gets more clear, it's also more likely to rub people the wrong way. No one gets offended by an unclear sentence, but no one is transformed by it either. And while an unclear, boring sentence may not offend anyone, it also doesn't keep them turning the page. (laughs) So how do you write tight? How do you find those weasel words that infect your writing? Well, that is what we're going to talk about today. Author Media presents the Christian Publishing Show. This is the podcast for writers who want to write the kind of books that readers can't put down. And to help us add the glue of tight writing to our books, we have a very special guest. She is a Christie award-winning author, a best-selling author who's written over 150 different books and sold over 5 million copies. Angela Hunt, welcome back to the Christian Publishing Show. I am so glad to be here. Now, Angela, I know you like to talk about weasel words. I don't know if it's a unique phrase to you, but walk us through what is a weasel word in relation to tight writing? Well, my metaphor was like, your book is a garden, a beautiful garden, and you've planted all the ideas that you want in there. But weasels can get in and uproot everything and make a mess and and bring and eat the roots of your plants and destroy everything (laughs) you've worked so hard to create. And so there are words that I call weasel words, and they destroy the effectiveness. Another metaphor I always use is, let's say my car needed a new battery. And I took it to the mechanic shop, and he said later, Miss Hunt, I'm so happy to tell you that I put in a new battery and $250 worth of unnecessary parts. Would I be thrilled? (laughs) Of course not, because not only do I not want to spend another $250 for something I didn't need, but all those extra things would just clog up my engine and destroy my car. So definitely writing tighter is better. Yeah, there's an old saying that says that good writing is not adding until there's nothing more to add. It is subtracting until there's nothing more to take away, where only that which shines remains. So now, do everyone have the same weasel words, or is this more of a thing where different authors have certain kind of crutch words that they go to that bloat their writing? It's both. There are certain words that everybody uses or uses when they should use something better. And then there are personal weasel words as well. For instance, I just found my own personal, a new weasel word that I've been using for years when I could easily cut it. And it's the word sat or sitting. I sat at the table and waited for George. That who cares if I'm sitting at the table or standing by the table? Just say, 
I went into the kitchen and waited for George. Sometimes it's important to, if you want to indicate that you're actually sitting at a table and that's crucial, leave it in. But if it's not, if it's something everybody would just assume, then cut it out. I think one of the reasons why weasel words is such a problem for so many authors is because of how they were first taught to write. So I remember when I was in elementary school, middle school, we all got the same assignment, right? Write 800 words about Christopher Columbus. And it wasn't really about writing, right? It was about proving that you read the encyclopedia article about Christopher Columbus or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so you write and you've got a 600 word essay on Christopher Columbus that includes everything that your fourth grade mind knows about Christopher Columbus. And so now you have a choice. Do I go read more about Christopher Columbus and learn more about Christopher Columbus? Or do I turn every and into as well as? (laughs) (laughs) And what most of us did was we turned every and into as well as, and we bloated our writing. Mm -hmm. I remember I had a really good writing instructor in high school and he did the opposite. He said, here's your writing assignment, and it can't be more than 1,200 words. And we're like, what? I was like, why are you limiting us? Why don't you want to encourage us to write more? But he was actually trying to teach us how to write well, which is about reducing and focusing and choosing, making those hard choices, right? Do you need to know that the character is sitting? Maybe that makes the scene more boring, right? Because it's less active. The mm-hmm. character is sitting, waiting for something to happen to them. Man, that's boring. If they're standing and moving into the room and having a conversation with somebody else, that's more active and also potentially have fewer words. Yes. Donald Moss, I've been to several of his uh, novel workshops, and he says you should cut any scene where someone is sitting, drinking coffee, taking a shower, or riding in a car because <laughs> there's just nothing happening in those kinds of scenes. The only exceptions would be is if they're having like a war in their internal thoughts or struggling or something, or a heated conversation over coffee. That works. But just where Joe is sitting there drinking his coffee and nothing is happening, just cut it. Yeah, have them play chess instead. A good conversation is happening during a chess match where the moves on the chessboard are reflecting what the people are saying. That's a way more interesting thing to have them do, right? And there's a million equivalences of a chess match, right? Maybe mm-hmm. your character's not into chess, but make your character interesting enough where they want to do more in their life than sit and drink coffee because that doesn't make them special. And that's a big picture way to cut out weasel words. Actually, that would be like a whole weasel scene, I suppose. But when you're actually getting down to the nitty gritty of the individual words that cause you problems, there's a secret that I use. And it's probably not a secret anymore because I tell everybody about it. But I'll say a lot of people listen to this podcast, (laughs) so be careful if you want it to stay secret. It's not going to be a secret, (laughs) but it's such a simple thing to do. And everybody who uses a computer can do this. And you make a list of the weasel words we're going to talk about and then your personal weasel words. And you simply, after you've finished a draft, search for that word and replace it. You use your computer's search slash replace feature, replace it with the same word, but in all capital letters. That way on your next draft, that word will be standing out to you. It's the literary equivalent of like blinking at you saying, evaluate me. For instance, the word was is a weasel word because it's a passive verb. The cat was on the table. That 
says nothing except that he's on the table. But see, readers today are from a video generation. We see books like a film in our minds. So the cat was on the table. It ain't cutting it. You, When you can cut that was and replace it with, he yawned on the table, he barfed on the table, he reclined on the table, he chewed his tail on the table. Have that cat doing anything but wasing, you know, just <laughs> existing. And I would say all be verbs. It doesn't mean not to use be verbs, but if you're going to use a be verb, am, is, were, was. Was, I think, is the worst because it, it's... It doesn't make a sentence passive, but it's attracted to a passive sentence. Yes. Like a flies are attracted to dead animals. <laughs> and I will actually take your all caps. There's another method to do this, and that is to turn on track changes. And then you replace every was with was. And that way there's a track change for every was. And then you could, as you're scrolling through, you can just go from was to was using track changes and like see next change. And then you make every weasel word give a reason for the hope that lies within it right if it can't justify itself in the <laughs> sentence right. you cut it out apologetics for <laughs> weasel words <laughs> but um yes like the phrase was struggling he was struggling that's not passive because he's struggling that's an active thing but somebody who's just being wasing and i say was because most stories are written in past tense of course if you're writing in present tense then you're going to be searching for is are i also do the search and replace for the word were the littlest weasel let's start at the beginning with the smallest little weasel the first time i ever noticed this was when i was teaching english in high school i had 11th and 12th graders and they peppered their papers with this word can you guess what it is? It? It! Yes, yes. <laughs> it's because they, we get lazy with it. Now, there are what I call good it's and bad it's or weak it's. So, she wore a blue dress. It had flowers on it. Do you have to really wreck your brain to figure out what that last it is referring to? Of course not. It's referring to the blue dress. Actually, I would probably write... She wore a blue flowered dress, period. But anyway, I digress. So that is a good it because the reader does not have to stop and think about what that it stands for. But a sentence that says it is hard to get a driver's license is a weak it because what is that it referring to? That it is hard to get a driver's license is a weak sentence because... It causes the reader to stop and think for a second. So I always say, kill that sentence and then stop. Think, what are you really trying to say? Getting a driver's license is hard work. Getting a driver's license is a challenge. That's what you're trying to say. So back up, start over, get rid of the weak it and carry it on through. The only exception I would say would be like in dialogue because People talk lazy English all the time. That's what they speak. So let them have it. But in narrative or nonfiction, get rid of those it's. Because weasel words, and I probably should have said this at the top of the episode, it's not just an issue for fiction. It's an issue oh, yeah. for nonfiction as well. In fact, uh, weasel words often for nonfiction involve adding too much exceptions or you're not saying it as strong as you are. Like it's literally weasel words. Cause you want to be like, well, you know, in some cases, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, just say 
what you mean or I feel such and such. This is one I had to really work on. It's like, I feel that this is blah, blah, blah. It's like, don't say I feel. We know this is you mm-hmm. writing it. Cut that out, right? Don't say I think mm-hmm. unless you really it means something, right? It's like I spent two weeks thinking about this mathematical formula and I finally I came to a realization, right? And then in that instance, maybe the word think is useful. But in general, the whole essay is what you think. The whole blog post is what you think. Take that phrase out and you can cut a lot of unnecessary words. Absolutely. Another category of weasel words are what I call the statements of the obvious, or if you want a more technical title, the no-duh statements. (laughs) My wife and I love pointing these out when watching movies uh, or really poorly written TV shows. It's like, as you know, Bob, we've been brothers for our whole lives. (laughs) As you know, Bob. Yeah, that's actually a dialogue rule because you shouldn't have your characters tell each other things they already know. I mean, it's ridiculous. As you know, Angela, you know, I built your website back 10 years ago when I first got started in website building. <laughs> yes, like, I need a new picture. You know that. I don't need to tell you that. <laughs> and you know, I need a new picture. I need to get out and take one. Anyway, statements of the obvious, like, he stood to his feet. Well, what else is he going to stand on? Cut the to his feet. My English teacher, Janet Williams, God rest her soul, she taught me more about English than anybody in college ever did. She said you should pay yourself a quarter for every word you can cut. So he stood to his feet, cut the to his feet, and you have just earned a hypothetical 75 cents. (laughs) She clapped her hands. What else is she going to clap? Her hands. So you cut the her hands. He scratched his head with his hand. With his hand, you do not need. Now, if he did something weird like scratching his head with fountain pen, well, then you can say that because that's odd. But he scratched his head. We all assume it's going to be his hand. He rose from his chair. All you have to say is he rose or he stood. He stood up. She sat down. You don't need the up. You don't need the down. She crouched down. A crouch is a down pose. So you can get rid of it there. Oh, and this is one of my favorites. He nodded his head in agreement. All right, first of all, a nod <laughs> is agreement. And what else are you going to nod? Your foot? I mean, no. All you have to do is say he nodded, period. She reached out and accepted the trophy. I use this one a lot. I'm always having to cut my reaching outs because she accepted the trophy. Works perfectly well. So just look around and notice when you're doing this. I wrote a series of books once, a three, three books, a trilogy, and sold them to a publisher. They were published. It was early, early in my career. And then they went out of print and I got the rights back and I sold them to a different publisher. And I said, would you let me edit those before you actually print them? Because I've learned a lot since I started. And they said yes. And I cut out 10,000 words from each book by simply cutting out these little weasel words right here. Didn't change a word of the plot, didn't cut any of the description. It was just 100% weasel words. And this, I want to say, is the sign of developing your craft. Because when you Mm -hmm. first wrote those books, it went through editing, you looked at the editing, and you were like, and it is very good. (laughs) And after years of practice and years of study, you're able to look upon your writing with fresh eyes and you're like, oh my goodness, there's uh, 10,000 words too many in this book, which is probably why it went out of print or contributed to it going out of print. And then now it's stronger, 
right? It's tighter and, and the pages turn faster and it's a much better book. And this is why the ninth commandment of novel marketing is thou shalt not publish thine first book first because your first book is so full of weasel words that you don't have eyes to see yet. And if you're just willing to set it aside and work on a second book, the writing of the second book will advance your skills. So that then when you look on your first book, you'll see, Oh, inside of this book is a, is a good book that's screaming to come out. And now I have Uh eyes to see how to get the good book out of the bad book. (laughs) Exactly. Let's move on to the whiz words again. The next one is that, that. I'm one of those people that throws that in there all the time. And when I go back and do my subsequent drafts, I just look at the sentence. Sometimes I'll actually put my finger over the that on the page. And if the sentence makes sense without it, then I cut it. But if it's really missing something without that, then I leave it in. I wish I could... Think of a pithier little rule for that. I'm sure there may be one, but I don't know it. And then there are what I call miscellaneous weasels, like just, very, rather, started to. Why say he started to eat when you can just say he ate? Began to, same thing, suddenly, because When you're writing a fiction story, everything is occurring in story time and suddenly doesn't really have any import. I wouldn't die on that one, but most of the times you can make it more effective by writing in a loud noise or a sharp movement than using the word suddenly. There was, there were. I was reading a book the other day, a writing craft book, and they said there was or there is is an expletive. It's a phrase that means nothing. I'd never heard it called an expletive before because the only time I've ever heard expletive used is when it's talking about words that shouldn't be spoken in polite society. I want to stop you right there because you may have missed something that Angela Hunt just said. This is Angela Hunt. She's won a Christie Award, at least one. She sold 5 million copies of her books and she's written 150 books and she just read a book on craft. So if Angela Hunt is still reading books on craft, trying to get better, then you had better be reading a book on craft. (laughs) You'd better be working on your craft. This is not something that you arrive at. Once you arrive at, that's when your career starts to die. Getting better, it's something that you're constantly working on. And Angela, I'm guessing you read this book and most of what it had to teach you already knew, but you saw this one thing that jumped out at you. You're like, oh, I never thought of it that way. And you read the whole book just to get that one Nugget. This is a really important way of approaching your writing that I want to encourage each of you who are listening to embrace of never feeling like you have arrived, never feeling that you figured it all out and be continuously hungry to improve, which I know you're already doing because you listen to this podcast. (laughs) The other day I was watching, I'm an Angliophile. I love all things British. And I was listening to a YouTube video on how to sound posh if you're British. And it was a whole list of words like, don't just say something was terrible. Say it was rather terrible. And the whole list of words, I thought, they're all weasel words. I can't talk like that. (laughs) I'd be editing myself all the time. So anyway, if you see a bunch of posh words in your writing, like rather or just or I can't even think of them because I think I've taken them all out of my head. Well, a lot of them are qualifiers. They're a way of making the statement less clear 
and less obvious. And it's okay to put those words into the mouths of your characters. Yes. But you as the narrator, you need to be honest and you need to be clear in your writing. And so especially true in nonfiction. There's times for clarifying phrases. And when if you're uncertain about something, you need to be really clear about that. But if you've discovered some truth and you're writing and presenting that truth in your book, present it as truth. <laughs> Don't hide your language behind all of these qualifiers and maybes. That doesn't make the writing more interesting and it doesn't make your case more compelling in general. Oh, yes. I just did it myself. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Jenkins edited one of my manuscripts and I thought I was really pretty good at cutting out weasel words. In fact, kind of pat myself on the back here. I thought, oh, it's clean. I did five drafts of this thing. And uh, Jerry wrote in several places, resist the urge to explain. But he wrote R-U-E, which is what that means. And I'll read what I wrote just briefly, originally, and then what he said. When he reached Foss's, Josh breezed through the door, paused to warm his hands at the electric fireplace, and nodded a greeting to Isabella. He took out the a greeting, because that's what it is when you nod to someone you see sitting there. And then in another place, a little further, he finds a nurse with his mother. He's at a nursing home. Smiling, Josh left Sherry, that's the nurse, with his mother, went to the community room where several residents were watching Shrek 2 on TV. He deleted, left Sherry with his mother, because that's obvious. If he's leaving the room, he's obviously leaving the nurse with his mother because mom was still in bed. So little things like that, you don't need to say. You just don't need to. And this is one of the reasons why it's important to have an editor, because it's hard to notice those things like the find and replace trick is really good. And as you, you know, especially for the common weasel words, or, you know, you do find and replace and you make it all caps or you turn on track changes and you put the highlight in. But there are also weasel words that you may not notice, right? Those are not things that would have lit up if you'd have done a track changes, oh, yeah. but getting a new fresh set of eyes on your writing, especially really talented eyes, right? Jerry Jenkins is ruthless with these kinds of words in his own writing. <laughs> and he can really see it in somebody else's. I was joking with him. I said, I think you're so good at this because he used to be an editor for a magazine and they paid by the word. So the more <laughs> words he cut, the less they had to pay. But yeah, he is exceptionally sharp. And anybody's work can use a sharp editor, another pair of eyes on it. What really helped me was back when Twitter was 140 characters. Oh, That's yeah. That's really restrictive. To be able to put a complete thought in 140 characters without, you know, chaining tweets together, you really have to put a lot of work into identifying the weasel words. And it's, yeah. it became a really great writing exercise. This was before Twitter got super toxic and political <laughs> and, and longer. And so Twitter's not as useful of a tool for this anymore, but... That act of like, oh, there's too many characters here. Where can I cut those characters? And where you're pruning and pruning, pruning really does lead to better sentences. Now, I have a question because we're going through these weasel words. And I want to hear your thoughts on adverbs and pronouns. Because adverbs and pronouns, they modify other words. And right. often, in my experience, it, they're modifying the other word because you picked the wrong word in the first exactly. place. Exactly. And so the, the choice to pick the wrong word, which you didn't do on purpose... Instead of fixing the wrong word, the temptation is to add more words around it to try to fix it. 
Remember, I used to teach writing to like third graders, and I would say, okay, instead of saying he walked angrily and ugh, adverbs make me just gag anymore, it's a reflex. I would say, what can you say instead of he walked angrily? And they'd say, he stalked or he stomped or he whatever. And I said, perfect. Instead of saying she said softly, and they'd say, whispered. And I'd say, that's right. <laughs> You're trading a wimpy verb for a hunky verb. And that's what you want. You want to fix the verb. Get rid of the wimp and put in the hunk. And it makes all the difference in the world. Because it not only shortens the number of words per sentence, which makes the writing mm -hmm. faster and more entertaining, but it also makes the words themselves better, hunkier words, as you put it. Like it yeah. really transforms the sentence. This is what good writing is. And it's work, right? It's, it doesn't oh, yeah. take much work to just vomit some words on the page where you're doing all of these things. And for a lot of people, that's how their first drafts are. And that's okay. But then you have to go in and start torturing the sentences till they confess to all of their wimpy words. Oh, yeah. And you know... Sometimes in like high school and middle school, English teachers, and I used to be one, they just want kids to be creative. And so they applaud a lot of really flowery adjectives and lots of adverbs because they're thinking, oh, this kid is really stretching. And But the point is that creative kind of writing you do in school is not professional writing. Professional writing ditches all that and goes for strong nouns and strong verbs. I just found the coolest trick in Scrivener. I found it this morning. In Scrivener, which is a writing program I hope most of you are familiar with because it's amazing. I've been using it for years, but I had never found this little toy. There's a little tool and you can click. It will either highlight. It highlights words. It either will highlight all direct quotes, which would be your dialogue, or it will highlight all the adverbs or all the adjectives or all the pronouns. So you can just click that. Everything else grays out and whatever you've chosen is there. So all of your adverbs are boom, smacking you in the face. <laughs> and it's great. Oh, I bet that's humbling. You're like, I don't <laughs> write with adverbs. And you go into Scrivener, you have it highlight all your adverbs and you're like, Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, well, I did it on one of my scenes, and I had to say most of the adverbs were not those noxious L-Y adverbs. They were things like too, too much, like that. So those, I, they don't drive me crazy. But the worst thing to me is putting an adverb in a speaker attribution, like he said snarkily or she screamed angrily. What is a scream if not angry? Honestly, those just really make me want to claw my eyes out. They're really bad. And we should say there is a role for adverbs and pronouns. So I'm, I'm not saying that you should never use an adverb. The ultimate goal is clarity and brevity and beauty. And I would say, you know, depending on your genre, the order of those may shift around a little bit. And if the adverb serves one of those higher purposes, keep it in, right? If the adverb is replacing five additional words that you'd have to use to communicate that same concept, then let the adverb stay. <laughs> but the adverb has to be able to give a really good reason for why it should be in the sentence. And most of the time, you can, you know, just say, he snarked, right? <laughs> turn the, yeah. instead of he said snarkily, you can turn that adverb just into a verb sometimes or, or cut it out altogether and ends up being 
stronger. And the most classic example is very, right? When yes. you're a child, you're writing an essay. Christopher Columbus was very, very, very courageous. It's like, yeah. I don't, yeah. It doesn't add anything to the sentence. Yeah, I cut almost every single one of my varies, except in dialogue. And even then, I cut a lot of them because adults don't usually use very. It is. It's like a childish thing. Along with exclamation points, exclamation points almost always come across as amateurish. And it's more dramatic sometimes to bring the emotional level of a scene down as opposed to amping it up. Let's back to weasel words. Here's another one. Don't waste words on dull moments like this. I pondered the problem for an hour, then began to type. Why have that hour and pondering in there when you could just say, I gave the problem some thought and began to type. It's more active that way. He hesitated, then gave her a kiss. I went back the other day. I got some rights back to some of my books and republished them myself. And I searched for paused and hesitated. I had people pausing and hesitating on every page. (laughs) And I thought, why? Why is that? Why did I do that? It's because you get into habits. You get into bad habits. I stared at him for a long moment, then looked away. Well, first of all, how is that moment longer than any other since they're all 60 seconds? And they decided not to go to the store, but to the beach. Why do we need to know they didn't want to go to the store? Just say, they went to the beach. They also decided not to go to the movies. They also decided not to go to the mountains. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just it's wasting emotional energy. It's wasting words on things that aren't happening. And, and I, I think one way to explain why this is so important, and, and I want to talk about coffee. So why do you spend $5 to get a coffee from a coffee shop when you can make it yourself so cheaply? Well, ultimately... Coffee is the coffee, it's water, and it's cream. And what makes the coffee so enjoyable is the bitterness of the coffee mixing with the creaminess of the cream. And when you make it yourself, most of the coffee is actually water. It's neither the bitterness of the coffee nor is it the creaminess of the cream. But when you go to a coffee shop, they're making it with espresso, which means there's very little water. And it means that the coffee is both more bitter and the creaminess is more creamy, and you enjoy it so much more. And so this taking out these unneeded words is like reducing the water in the coffee so that it's both more bitter and more creamy and far more desirable. That's a great <laughs> metaphor. It really works. All right. Here's a rule I got from Sol Stein. One plus one equals one half. Resist the urge to pile on. Sometimes we get in the writing groove and we write, he was tired, his bones ached. He was so tired he could have fallen over. He was so tired he could have fallen asleep standing up. And we go on and on and on and on about how tired or angry or sad or upset or disappointed that a person was when find the best phrase in that collage that you've constructed and use it and dump the rest. That's very simple. I find those things in my writing, and I know it's because I was tired, and I'd been typing and typing and typing, and I was in the groove, and the words seemed to be flowing. And uh, But one plus one equals one half as effective, and one plus one plus one equals one third as effective as just one would have been. And I would say this applies to descriptions, too. Somebody walks into the room, 
don't describe the windows and the carpet and the couch and the cushions on the couch, right? If you pick just one of those details and you give a really clear picture of that detail, it tends to help the reader themselves fill in the rest of the room, right? If you talk about how dingy the carpet is, they're not going to picture an ornate sofa sitting on that dingy carpet, right? It's going to give them the sense of dinginess in the room overall. And when you do describe a place or even a person, keep it moving. Instead of she walked into the room and noticed the curtain, the carpet, and blah, 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 blah. She walked in the room and took a seat on the faded couch by the window. Would you like tea, Miss So-and-so said, handing her a delicate china plate and saucer. You keep action happening as you're describing. And particularity is a great thing to pick out the details of a place or a person that matter. If you describe a man with a scar on his cheek, it needs to be there for a reason. That needs to say something about his character, probably be referred back to at some point. Just don't say she had four moles in the shape of a heart on her chin and (laughs) and not remark on that later. Things have to be there for a reason. This whole idea of weasel words is captured in a single concept. It's things have to be there for a reason. And weasel words often don't have a good reason for being there. And they had a good reason for being there in the first place. When you watch a sculptor sculpting, they take out big chunks and they're not done, right? It's not like if you ever watch a 3D printer work where it's like it does the bottom part of the sculpture and it's perfect. And then it does the next part up and it's perfect, right? That's not how sculpture tends to work. They, they do the big picture, they chunk off the big chunks and they switch to a different hammer until finally they're using this teeny tiny hammer to make these teeny tiny changes. It's the same with writing. And so it's okay to have those words there like you give six different reasons for why the guy is tired and you have all six reasons there in the first draft because you don't know which is the best you've been writing for two hours you know one of them's good and then you come back with fresh eyes later and you're doing your revision you're like oh yeah reason three that's the most articulate it gets right to the heart of the matter and i can cut the other reasons so one way you can think of these weasel words is they're a stopgap, but you don't want to leave them in in the final product It's exactly right. Let's talk for a moment about dialogue attributions, which the best one to use, if you have to use one, is said, because it's like the word the, T-H-E. It's invisible to the reader. We really don't even hear it. But if it's possible, if you only have two people in the conversation, once you establish the ping pong of it, who speaks first, who responds, then you don't even need speaker attributions. Or sometimes you can use a physical move. He walked toward the desk. Come here, Sally. Obviously, it's the he is the one who's speaking. And be careful that you don't have physical impossibilities. You're so cute, she smiled. No, you can't <laughs> smile those words. You're so cute. I mean, it doesn't work. Or you're so cute. She giggled. You can't giggle those words. So you could say, you're so cute. She said, period. She giggled. Or you're so cute, end quote, she giggled. Either one of those would be fine, but don't have her giggling the words. I have uh, witnessed that happening. My daughter, she just turned three was trying to tell a funny story and she was giggling so much that no one knew what on earth she was saying. (laughs) (laughs) She was laughing at all of her jokes as she was saying them. But you're right, adults don't tend to talk that way. (laughs) Yes, thank goodness we'd never understand each other. All right, interior monologue. Now, this is a fiction thing. 
if you are writing a scene in one character's head, you don't have to say he thought. All right. Tom walked in the room and looked around. The place had changed a lot since he was last here, but Tom's portrait was still over the fireplace and he was still a rascal, period. Okay, the he was still a rascal is coming straight from Tom's head because a narrator wouldn't say that. So I wish you could see me because I have a little camera. I have my hand kind of curled up and it's like the camera. So the camera starts outside of Tom's head. Tom walked into the room and looked around. So the camera is outside of Tom's head. The picture was still on the wall and Tom was still a rascal. That camera has zipped inside of Tom's head and told us what he was thinking. And so you don't have to say, and Tom was still a rascal, comma, he thought. No, you don't. That marks you as an amateur because, first of all, you don't need it. And secondly, you're not really understanding how point of view works with that sort of roving camera in third person. In this case, you wouldn't even need to use italics. Oh, and you, no, no. In fact, italics are an old-fashioned thing. Nobody writing contemporary fiction is using them anymore that I can think of. I haven't read a book with italics in it for thoughts in a long time. Most of the time, you just write what the character's thinking because you're in that person's head in that scene. So it's pretty obvious. I know you have a book on this, right? So tell us about your book if somebody wants to learn more. Yes, it's really just a lesson. It's not very long. You could probably read it in an hour. But it's all this material we've been talking about in a book. It's called Track Down the Weasel Words. It's part of my Writing Lessons from the Front series. It's available on Amazon in Kindle and paper. Just a skinny little lesson book that you can mark in and highlight and underline whatever you need to do. But it will just help you get a handle on this self-editing thing. And as we have both been saying through this whole thing, it's that this is something nobody ever perfects because it's something you learn how to do the more you do it. And the more you do it, the better you get. And we will have a link to that book, Track Down the Weasel Words, in the show notes. So if you just scroll down in your app, there is a link that will take you directly to Amazon. You can check out that book. And I really do encourage you to buy craft books like this, really specific craft books that will help you with very specific things. And then put it into practice in your next writing session or write a short story specifically trying to avoid weasel words. And if you do this, if you make a habit of doing this in your writing, you're going to find that you're going to get better faster. Everyone gets better with practice, but your practice will be more meaningful, more effective. So if you want to get good at writing, read books on craft. And the name of the book is Track Down the Weasel Words. Angela, do you have any final tips or encouragement? Uh, William Strunk said it best. Omit needless words, period. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. Well said. The blog post version of this episode is sponsored by the Book Launch Blueprint. The first 30 to 60 days after your book's release determine the success of your book. If your copies fly off the shelves, bookstores order more. And if they order enough, you get that coveted face-out position on the shelf where new readers start to discover your book for the first time. 
But if copies languish on the shelf, they get returned to the publisher. You only have 30 days on Amazon to get that coveted number one new release badge. Only 30 days for the new release badge to cover up any lack of reviews that you have. So how do you make the most out of your book launch? Well, I have a course to teach you exactly that. The Book Launch Blueprint is a 28-day interactive course developed by novel marketing host Thomas Umstead Jr., that's me, and Christie Hall of Fame author James L. Rubart. In this course, you will learn exactly what you must do to make your book launch a resounding triumph. You can learn more at booklaunch.fun. Our featured patron today is Marlene Bagnell, author of Write His Answer, a Bible study for Christian writers. This book offers practical help and encouragement for overcoming self-doubts, writer's block, rejection, procrastination, and more with scriptures to study, questions to apply the message to your life, and space to write your responses. Marlene, thank you so much for being a patron of the Christian Publishing Show. Thank you for helping keep this podcast on the air. The Christian Publishing Show is a production of Author Media. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt. The blog post is by Shauna Lettler. And the producer is Lori Christine. I'm Thomas Umstadt, Jr., your host. And to find the blog post version of this episode, visit ChristianPublishingShow.com. Thank you for listening, and live long and prosper.